The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk/audible for further details. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, we're asking why women are still so underrepresented across the media industry. Also in the podcast... There's a big shake-up at Radio 1 as new controller Ben Cooper makes his mark. Plus, another local newspaper bites the dust. We've been taken on by a succession of big companies, all of whom have asset-stripped, cut things down to the bare bone, tried to make money... Uh, and failed dismally. And have your highlighters and notepads at the ready as we pick the best and worst of this year's Christmas TV. Yes, it really is that time of the year again. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. You'll be pleased to know, probably, that we're Leverson free this week. And here to celebrate with me in the pod, I have the grandest of media journalism dames. That's you, Maggie Brown. G- good to see you, Maggie. How are you? I'm feeling extremely grand. Excellent. And also here is Kira Cochran, features writer for The Guardian and formerly the paper's women's editor. Um, now, you wrote a piece earlier this week about women, or rather the lack of them in the media and other areas of public life. Uh, and I've got the stats here, if you bear with me. Uh, you know these very well, no doubt. Uh, in the average month, 78% of newspaper articles are written by men. of question time contributors are men, and 84% of reporters and guests on Radio 4's Today Show are men. So, Kira, the question for you, where are all the women? Well, that was what I was really interested in finding out. And actually, there there were lots of answers that came out while I was doing the research. So... uh, the obvious answer is that women still bear the burden of childcare um, and that a lot of women, particularly in journalism, um, print journalism, do leave the office and leave uh, their jobs in their 30s. So that is one answer. But there are um, many answers beyond that. Um, there is obviously an element um, of sexism in this, uh, even if unconscious. It was interesting talking to bookers, actually, for TV shows, because obviously I was looking at a range of media. So I was looking at newspapers, but I was also looking at radio and TV shows. And a lot of bookers were saying that women were less likely to push themselves forward onto those shows. So they might get a lot of emails from men, perhaps who they'd never booked before, saying, oh, I'm desperate to come on your show. I'll talk about anything. I can come on this date, this date, this date, this date. And they said they would never, ever, ever receive um, emails like that from women. And what I found interesting about that was um, this kind of chicken and egg question. If you don't have any women in the public eye, then how many women are going to feel comfortable claiming that space? Um, so that's something that I would like to see explored more. Maggie, were you surprised by these figures, by the, by the, by the scale of the issue? Not at all. In fact, um, I, if I'd had to uh, predict the kind of figures that Kira would have come out with, I would have said those were very accurate. And, of course, what they're not reflecting, these, this is almost like a content analysis which has been very helpfully uh, compiled. It doesn't also um, cover really who is off-screen uh, making these arrangements. And so I think that um, it, it paints a, a, a rather devastating but not unsurprising picture to me uh, of what's going on but I also think that the hidden bit of the iceberg is really who's doing the booking and who 
who's actually running the shows behind the scenes. Now, there are prominent women across the media in all sorts of places, but they are pretty few and far between. And it's a mixture of things. It's partly child-raising and child-rearing. I know this from my own experience because I've brought up four children. And the irony I find out is that now I'm an empty nester. I'm kind of past it, really. You could say, well, you can call me a grand old lady. But, you know, that's about kind of, you know, that, that is the, the, the career trajectory of, 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 of many women who have to be mothers. The hours that people are required to work are very anti-family, to be honest. And uh, if I could just broaden it slightly to broadcasting... Two years ago, exactly, there was a devastating uh, uh, survey done by Skillset, the, in, the creative industries body, uh, and it found that 5,000 5, women had just simply dropped out of the workforce in two years. This is in broadcasting, uh, and, and it, 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 they were attacked. The, you know, your statistics can't be right, but in fact, the trend has continued. Nothing has changed over the past two years. In fact, it's got worse. And you only have to look now at the industry we're in, news- the newspaper industry, magazine industry, going through massive changes. And uh, this is not a very either welcoming or uh, happy environment for people who have a number of commitments outside of their job uh, to, to, to thrive and prosper in. So, Kira, what can we what can we do about it? Do you think? I mean, no one's suggesting bringing in quotas or anything, which is a you know incredibly blunt instrument. But you know, how do you um, how do you tackle it? Where do you start? Some... Well, I think that's what we need to ask. The piece was mapping um, this problem rather than actually suggesting a lot of solutions. I think that um, speaking to people over the last week, people have come forward with various ideas. Um, a lot of ideas around parenthood, making it easier to um, work flexibly, uh, having more contact. So, uh, for instance, um, newspapers having more contact with women who are on maternity leave during that period to make it easier for them to come back afterwards. Um, I've spoken to people who have suggested, for instance... Um, more work experience for women who want to be sports journalists. So work experience specifically for that area, it's less than 10% of all um, sports journalists are women and less than 5% of sports coverage is of women's sports. So if you could kind of come up with schemes that would encourage women who want to get into that area, that would be quite a simple and quite a concrete thing that you might do to at least sort of raise the bar there. Maggie, uh, Miriam O'Reilly won a very high-profile discrimination case against the BBC at the start of this year when she was dropped from Countryfile. Do you see uh, any effect from that on screen? Is it too early, or do you think that's been forgotten about? Oh, no, I don't think it has been forgotten, actually, uh, in part because uh, this was the BBC that was being accused of a number of things, including victimisation. And I think that there has been kickback from uh, executives who don't like to be told who they're going to make into a presenter and how they run their programmes. But I think that has been uh, a rise in uh, the sense of we have to actually watch this. We, we need to take a great deal more care when we're addressing the issue of older, both on-screen talent and, and sometimes off-screen talent as well. One of the odd things I think about this, which never really gets discussed, is that the power resides in quite a, a small number of hands when uh, you're editing or you're running shows, and a lot of it is actually almost conservatism. Uh, as 
uh, a lot of budgets, certainly, say, at the BBC, are being cut. You'll, you'll notice if you're ever on radio, there seems to be hardly anyone around. It seems to be disembodied. Um, so the people doing the booking are very stretched themselves, and I think they go back to the same uh, kind of file and they look up who they used before and if they're half decent. I mean, I certainly know I, I seem to feature on certain sorts of shows, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it's a kind of, well, who, oh, you know, who do we call up again? And I think it's not so much blind prejudice here. I think it's actually just the pressures of, of, of working in the kind of 24-7 environment that we are all in now. But, but Kira makes a very good point about why aren't women more pushy? And I, I've been feeling this when I've been watching the Leveson. I know it's a Leveson-free zone now. And I know there are people who there have been prominent women in all of this, but the overall culture that you feel certainly coming through from the tabloid press is one of... Um, you might say very uh, t- t- testosterone-fueled tabloid male journalists. In fact, I trained with one of the people who's been uh, arrested, and, and and I know exactly how that culture works. And I, I was I was just it, it just strikes me how that that kind of very male aggressive uh, climate, certainly in certain, some areas of newspapers, um, still seems to persist. And uh, the most talked about woman in the Leveson inquiry so far was sadly the woman on the left, wasn't it? Which was uh, says something, no doubt. Kira, just finally, um, Kerry Thomas, uh, editor of Today programme, which famously only has one regular female presenter, said that he only gets uh, two or three listeners a year from listeners about the, uh, the issue of uh, how many women are on air on Today. Uh, do you think that, that suggests that you know, the, the public at large care about this issue, or, or is it just not an issue that they want to pick up a pen and write to the editor of Today about? Well, I think the public does care about this issue. Um, I think when you're a journalist and you're writing about lots of different subjects, you do get a sense of the issues that the public cares about by the response that you get to them. And I've had an enormous response to this piece. People are really angry about it. And it's not so much that they're writing letters of complaint. It's possibly more that they're switching off. I wonder whether you might get a few more letters now. Well, Kira, thank you very much. We've linked to Kira's piece on our blog. That's at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk. On now to some of the other stories that have made the media headlines this week, and we welcome Media Guardian's Mark Sweeney to the pod. Mark, you joined Maggie earlier this week at a lunch with the ITV chief executive Adam Crozier. He revealed there were going to be some changes to Downton Abbey, but ruled out revamping The X Factor. You'd have thought, given the respective performance of the two shows, it, it might have been the other way round. But tell us, what's up with Downton Abbey? Well, there's a bit of a conspiracy theory with Downton Abbey. There's this idea that they might have shortened it by about 15 minutes because of the complaints about the advertising. Crozier sort of addressed the, the group there at the lunch and said that there was a fifth ad break because it goes from 60 minutes in Series 1 to 75 minutes in Series 2, and they're cutting it back. The 75-minute shows had a fifth ad break, but it was such a short, compressed period of time that sometimes you only got a few minutes of Downton Abbey before it wrapped up. So less Downton, but less ads. Uh, Maggie, I mean, rarely, as a, rarely have adverts in a TV show prompted so much discussion. Well, I think one of the reasons is that it is true that this uh, extra ad break has created um, a backlash. The other problem has been that there's been a very inappropriate um, sponsorship uh, credit by Aviva, which uh, didn't just say, this is brought to you by Aviva. It had a sort of little playlet of you know, people in dire circumstances being helped. And that has added to this sense of complete clutter uh, when actually you want to get on with watching your favourite drama, if you're me. I mean, I appreciate not everybody loves Downton Abbey, but I do. So I, being a media journalist, have tried to watch it with the ad breaks and, in fact, have resorted to fast-forwarding it because it was just so irritating. I think that going back to a standard hour is, is very sensible. Um, I also think that, quite probably, uh, it may be the case that the storylines fit 
uh, an hour better because there have been some extraordinary jolts and twists and turns and rather strange things happening in order to sort of create the, the right kind of cliffhangers at the end of all these mini breaks. The overall issue is that you can't actually have uh, free-to-air commercial television without advertising breaks. Uh, at the same time, uh, it is easier to fit them into an X Factor or Britain's Got Talent format where you basically have a series of acts and it's kind of is almost a relief if you have a little break because then you can you know, get used to the next bit of uh, whatever's coming up. So I think it's, it's a mix of things. The good news is, of course, that we're going to have a Christmas special of Downton Abbey. Apparently the Aviva sponsorship isn't going to be as intrusive and hey-ho, you know, next autumn we're presumably going to have another, perhaps a more restrained um, final third episode of Downton Abbey. So all in all, it was a win. I think. Well, there's more Christmas TV chat coming up, but Mark, there's changes going to happen. Uh, well, in fact, there aren't going to be changes to the X Factor. Uh, ratings for this series are down about two million, I think, on last year. But uh, Crozier said no need for radical change. No, he says if you look at other years of X Factor, that comparably it's not down that much. That 2010 was an exceptionally high year. So he says there's nothing wrong with the judging panel that they've got. Um, Cal won't be coming back. That was raised. We kind of knew that he wouldn't be anyway because he's got contractual commitments in the USA. But um, he, he, he emphatically sort of backed the judges. It's all right. Nothing to see here. The acts aren't boring. These are still great numbers. Keep faith in X Factor. But there was bad news on Wednesday night for ITV and Adam Crozier when both Manchester City and Manchester United got dumped out of the Champions League. Uh, Mark, that means the ratings for their uh, expensively acquired football coverage might not be what they once were. Sorry, I'll say that again. The ratings for their expensively acquired football coverage won't be what they once might have been, but it's, uh, it's good news for Richard Desmond. Tell us why. Well, it will be. Desmond uh, still has the rights, although they will go to ITV uh, for 2012-13 for the Europa League. So all of a sudden you've got Manchester United and Man City in the Europa League. It will be millions of audience, which you wouldn't normally see, and they'll be able to cash in on that through TV ad sales, which will also work out very well for them on another level because Channel 5 is actually starting to get, uh, for advertisers, quite expensive. Um, What they need to deflate the price, which might get a bit complex, but basically what they need is shows with a lot of audience if you pump more audience in the cost of buying it becomes a bit cheaper if you imagine sort of filling up a bath a bit more so make the pool bigger so what they need is some some shows to bring that price down and this is perfect massive audience for big games so Tesman will be selling a box he'll be sending a box of cigars to Alex Ferguson but I don't know if we'll be glad to receive them Uh, Maggie from ITV to Channel 4 where there's been an exodus of senior executives including Sue Murphy who was responsible for my big fat gypsy wedding among other shows and drama bigwigs Camilla Campbell and Robert Wolfcott Yes, indeed. Um, tell us what's going on. What's going on at Channel Four? Is there trouble at Horsery Road? Well, there's a mix of things going on actually. Uh, Jay Hunt, who came in uh, a year ago in January, uh, has finally got round to restructuring her commissioning team. It's 140 strong, so you have to put that in, in context. There are about seven big vacancies. Um, she's uh, inherited a channel that uh, clearly is in the middle of some form of creative renewal. I mean, I, I think it's an ongoing renewal, to be honest, when you're For a couple of years, at least, yeah. Indeed. But, I mean, th- there is clearly the effect of uh, the loss of Big Brother and uh, an uncertain performance from some of the newer strands coming in. Uh, a year is too short to uh, judge her own uh, performance, but I think a mix of things. Some people have decided to jump, maybe before they're pushed. Others, quite genuinely, are really talented people who've just sort of decided they've had enough. Say Sue Murphy, 
has been there for more than 10 years. So, I mean, she's moving across into the independent sector. And, in fact, one of the areas that she'll be working in is, is with uh, Gordon Ramsay, who was one of her hires at, at Channel 4 and definitely needs, I think, a bit of a, uh, some career leadership. So there's a number of uh, things going on. There are um, clearly um, other people she's bringing in uh, to oversee daytime, which is absolutely crucial. Daytime is the area where Channel 4 makes up the bulk of its uh, ratings, and that's been a very poor performer. Uh, she's, she's, she's got a number of... Well, actually, look at it the other way around. It's an opportunity for her to refresh uh, the commissioning uh, team and to bring in people that uh, she thinks will give a new... Uh, you know, have a fresh appraisal of, of what's needed. I mean, you have to remember here, Channel 4 was set up not as a place for jobs for life. Jeremy Isaacs famously only served one term and he left in tears in 1988, but he stuck to his guns. People were never hired on the basis that um, it was a permanent job. They were on contracts. And the idea was that you would interchange with the independent sector or other broadcasters and there would be a toing and froing of talent and ideas. And, uh, of course, you can make out... Um, perhaps uh, make that sound too grand in, in trying to fit this in with Jay Hunt's strategy. But there is a truth that a lot of people have been there for a long time and some changes are probably very useful. Too early to judge then, but it's going to be a very big year, 2012, very big year for Jay Hunt and Channel 4. It certainly is. And I, I think that while she keeps the uh, the, the trust and, and she's backed by uh, Chief Executive Dave, David Abraham and, and the board, um, she's pretty safe. You cannot judge a creative uh, officer on even really two years because that's the time it takes to bring uh, anything, a really big format, not a quick turnaround, um, through to the screen. Now, it's perfectly true Channel 4 is not a place where you expect masses and masses of drama, but it is a place where you expect experimentation and development of new, say, stand-up comedians, and that doesn't happen overnight. They'll know they've succeeded when we stop going on about Big Brother, but uh, yes, yeah, uh, let's wait and see. But Mark, away from the world of commercial broadcasting, it's all changing the world of Formula One. Having lost the main live rights to Sky, the BBC have now suffered the indignation of having virtually its entire on-screen F1 team pinched by the satellite broadcaster, including David Croftycroft and Martin, uh, well, he's just Martin Brundle, isn't he? But uh, have the wheels come off for the BBC and Formula One? Well, it's part of an overall picture, isn't it, of cutbacks at the Beeb, and they've got to be a lot more careful with about 15%, I think, coming out of their sports rights budget. So they have to look for more things that they want to keep hold of. They've got to be more creative with. They've got to look to share them. They've lost a whole bunch of rights, uh, things like the French Open, etc., things that they deem that they don't really need to spend the money to stay on and keep. Um, Formula One, you could argue it was probably quite a good thing. They keep a toe in the water there, although they are losing about half of it. So is it a Pyrrhic victory? Jury's out, I guess. But from Formula One to Radio One, see what we did there. And it's all change at the former nation's favourite, where Judge Jules, Giles Peterson, Fabio and Groove Rider and Kissy Sellout, no, me neither, um, have been given the heave-ho as part of new controller Ben Cooper's shake-up of the station's specialist music DJs. They're being replaced by five new faces, or should I say voices, that's Screamin' Benga, Toddler T, Charlie Sloth, it says here, and Friction, which to me sounds like the lineup at the 410 from Aintree. Uh, and frankly, I've just aged 10 years in the last 10 seconds. Um, now, uh, Maggie, I look at you, but then 
looking at the expression on your face, I look straight to Mr. Sweeney. Well, I mean, um, surely isn't this about bringing down the age of uh, Radio 1 it is. listeners? I mean, you know, it, it has this terrible tendency to uh, drift into the upper 30s and the commercial radio sector are quite rightly pretty furious with Radio 1's of supposedly infringing on their commercial audience. So uh, we've just discussed channel four and the need to refresh things it seems to me a new controller's banned because there's been i know he's been uh, effectively there for, for a long time but i mean he's banned to want to make his mark and uh, i can't say i'm weeping into my uh, cold cup of tea here I'm not going to misjudge yours mark are you, are you looking forward to toddler tea or are you more of a screaming benga man <laughs> i've got all of charlie sloth stuff uh, i tell you um but I think, Maggie, you make an important point about the age there. The BBC Trust have been knocking on Ben Cooper's door and, the, uh, and his predecessor, Andy Parfitt, saying, you know, you've got to bring the age down, which have been drifting up towards the uh, mid to high 30s. Yes, yeah. it's, it's getting that way. Uh, the question, I suppose, is now we've sorted out some of the specialist dance DJs. When does, uh, when does Ben Cooper turn his attention to uh, the elephant in the room? No offence. It's Chris Moyles at breakfast. Yes, but, they, but they've just resigned him, haven't they? Till 2014, yes. yes so but, therefore, he's got plenty of time to worry about it, hasn't he? And bring on whoever they want to. To local newspapers now, and to be more specific, the Meboy News, which published its last ever issue this week, along with its sister paper, the East Kent Gazette, after more than 150 years. The paper's circulation has been declining for a long time, but its fate was sealed when a proposed sale by owner Northcliffe Media to rival KM Group was referred to the Competition Commission by the Office of Fair Trading. No sale, said Northcliffe, meant no future and the loss of 38 jobs. In a long and distinguished history, former Medway News reporters include Peter Salmon, the head of BBC North and possible future DG, Sky News crime correspondent Martin Brunt, and me. Uh, but that's, that's the only time you're going to hear those three characters mentioned in the same sentence. I went along to a wake organised by employees, past and present, and caught up with Piers Morgan, not that one, and his brother Lance, who were the paper's long-serving snapper-in-chief and sports editor respectively. Piers began by telling me why the paper was being shut down. No advertising. Advertising's fallen out. Um, sales have dropped. Uh, we tried uh, Northcliffe tried a new scheme where they give away fifty thousand um, papers each week. It's cost an awful lot of money. And um, there's newspapers up and down the country. They're in the same situation as us. And they, after the uh, Kent Messenger um, pulled out the deal a few weeks ago, that was it. Plan B was goodbye. Lance, I think you said lack of investment, you said. No, absolutely right. In, in my opinion, there's been no investment in our paper for the last about 15 years. Yeah, we've been taken on by a succession of big companies, all of whom have asset stripped, cut things down to the bare bone, tried to make money uh, and failed dismally. Um, I agree to some extent that uh, obviously falling sales and, and obviously the modern media and with apps and iPhones and... and I don't uh, think the internet... The internet has helped local papers at all. In fact, it's been the biggest hindrance because these days, news is instant and um, they want to read your paper. They, you, don't, you just switch straight onto the internet. And you get all your news now off of social networking and the internet. And you try and find me somebody under the age of 35 that buys a paper. Oh, well, that's, that's my or point. even a local paper. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to butt in here because... My, my view is that all this old stuff about internet and internet news and apps and iPhones and things, you're disqualifying, I reckon, 30% of the population. 30% of the population are 55 and over, and if they're like me, they don't ever look at it. I don't look at a newspaper online, perhaps just because I'm in the business, I don't know. But I wouldn't dream of looking at a newspaper online. I would have to have a newspaper in my house and sit down at breakfast and read it. Um, and I think there are an awful lot of old people that wouldn't even know how to switch a computer on. 
Uh, and I think they're going to be, personally, I think they're deprived of anything local. As far as I can see, it's a decision that's made by suits who have got no idea what it's like to be out in the real world. Suits who only see, see chess pieces and, uh, balance, and balance sheets. They're not worried about news and people. They don't, they don't ever look at readers as readers. They look as readers as numbers. And I think, that's, I think it's a tragedy. OK, Mark Sweeney's gone, and in his place, as if by magic, is The Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Frost. It's like an episode of Doctor Who, all this regeneration. But, Vicky, you're here because you've been going through the new edition of the Radio Times. All the excitement, and it's the Christmas edition of the Radio Times. Thank you very much. And you've been picking out the highlights and occasional lowlights, it says here, of this year's Christmas TV schedule. So is it a pleasure? And will it be a pleasure to watch? I think it looks slightly thin on the ground this year, what? actually. Um, but the, but uh, having said that, there are the usual things. There is the Christmas Doctor Who, um, there is Christmas Day Downton. That is a treat, I think. And um, and then there is Great Expectations, which I know Maggie has seen actually, and I haven't yet. But everybody tells me is just fantastic, which is stripped across three nights. So that's quite a lovely thing to that's stay a, in for. That's a, a healthy start. And Maggie, uh, should we have Great Expectations for Great Expectations? Yes, it's fantastic. Uh, really incredibly good performances. Who are the marquee um, names? Well, I mean, Gillian Anderson actually plays a completely unexpectedly fresh uh, Miss Havisham. I know that sounds odd, given Miss Havisham is covered in, you know, wrinkle. usually she's wrinkled and, and very dried out. It's it's a most fantastic performance, and uh, it, it gives you an insight into why she's as bitter and twisted as she is. But on screen, you usually have to sort of infer that, really, from just a few uh, kind of encounters with her. Ray Winston as Magwitch, the uh, convict who comes ashore and terrifies the life out of Pip uh, is simply uh, incredible. I I mean, he absolutely fills the screen. And then almost the third, um, what you could almost star of of the show, is is, is, uh, the the setting is actually the the Essex marshes. And I think it's Mersey. I don't exactly know where it is, but you have not seen marshes like this. The mud is just incredible. It is wild. It does feel... Uh, like the end of the kind of the world, and they've they've created a blacksmith's uh, forge and cottage in the middle of all of this, and you can exactly understand why Pip is just desperate to get out. I I I, I sat there with a quite sort of hardened bunch of you might call celeb type people, not me but others, and everybody sat at the end of the first hour, first episode. Everybody sat there and said, "Oh." Can we have some more? And, and, and Oliver Twist. I, yes, people would have sat there for three hours. It's that good. And so I'm, it's nine o'clock. It's being stripped over three nights. And I bet those Essex marshes are good for bird watching, by the way. Oh, I'm sure Off they topic, are. But I, yeah. think, I think he would have a very nice holiday there. I, I've not heard a bad word about it, actually. And two other big shows coming out on the Beeb are the, uh, the Gruffalo, or the new Gruffalo, and the Borrowers. Yes, so quite big for family audiences. And I think, actually, the BBC has slightly skewed this towards a family Christmas viewing. Um, so The Borrowers has Stephen Fry and Victoria Wood in and sort of looks very classy. Um, and The Gruffalo, I don't really know much about The Gruffalo, but I'm oh, sure it will it. delight people. Yes, it's, uh, yes, The Gruffalo is The Gruffalo. What I would say, though, about The Borrowers, which I have seen, which is extraordinary, is that I remember the 93-94 uh, award-winning versions on, on BBC Two 
This one has been set in Hackney. It's a recession version. It's 2011. The little people live under this sort of uh, the, the floorboards of a Hackney terraced house, and there's a strong input from Misfits because um, the, the the actual uh, director has has directed Misfits, and um, the, the the boy who um, uh, kind of is, is, is a bit of the wild borrower. Uh, he's actually one of the stars, uh, Robert Sheehan of, uh, of of the of the early Misfits. Anyway, so it's been very much tickled up and uh, added down with the kids uh, down with the kids yes and I think uh, Vicky one of the shows we're going to be talking about either because it was brilliant or because it just didn't live up to old heights is going to be absolutely fabulous back on BBC One yes um, it's back on Christmas Day at 10 o'clock no pressure then uh, well, well, in a way, actually, I think slightly no pressure because, you know, 10 o'clock on Christmas Day, I think you're either drunk or asleep, or both, you know. So <laughs> so I think that probably gets you quite in or the rowing. spirit for it. Um, I, I'm slightly terrified about it because I did love Abfab back in the day and I, I always worry about this sort of thing, about whether it can really turn out to be quite what it always was. And Maggie, you mentioned the Downton Abbey Christmas special earlier. Um the big question is, will it be the number one rating show over Christmas? Because that's up against EastEnders. That might split the audience and Doctor Who might come through and take the take the honours. Yes, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Christmas audiences are always... Uh, usually, the interesting thing is, I would have said the BBC will win because the BBC always wins. But Danton is a, is a real sort of, uh, you know, boulder thrown into the BBC's sort of uh, pond at this time of the year. So I'd, I wouldn't like to predict what would happen. I know what I'll be watching, or at least I may, I may have to Sky Plus it, but Eddie I, I know. Christmas watching. on Channel 5? <laughs> no. You know what we don't know? We don't. Know. No, tell us what you'll be watching. Well, we don't know what Channel 4's, Channel 4's um, alternative Christmas message, uh, or who it will be from, uh, rather. And it's interesting, I've never seen Channel 4 compete on Christmas Day before, but if you turn on, on at 10 o'clock on, on Christmas morning, you will see Gordon Ramsay doing a turkey cook-along direct from his uh, Wandsworth kitchen. I mean, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's not a bad idea it's no, not you know it's, it's, it's i think it's you know for christmas morning i think it's quite a good idea i mean i think actually where channel four are playing big is this coming week That's in right. fact where they have a real bumper week they have i mean happy christmas as channel four let's bring out this is england 88 so that's your sort of you know your pre-christmas <laughs> grimness. Yeah. yes exactly but um so that's three parts stripped across um, this coming week and they also have a lot of their big food hitters coming out this week as well and um i think it looks very strong for them and i and i think you know that's quite a sort of a savvy way to play it in fact Yes. Do you think Jamie? Do you think uh, Gordon Ramsay on Christmas is going to forget to defrost his turkey? So it starts early at six a.m. with him uh, having the, <laughs> the frozen turkey in the bath, like my mum used to do when I was ten years old, frantically uh, uh, having a go at it with a hairdryer, and then which he, is not recommended in the bath. Will he be on opposite downs and having food poisoning later? That yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, on, on the red button. <laughs> Uh, on that on that bombshell, uh, thank you very much to Vicky Frost for coming in for our Christmas TV peak. Doubtless we'll be talking more Christmas TV in the weeks to come. And also to Maggie Brown. If you want to give us your feedback on anything you've heard today, particularly cookery tips, head to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk or drop on over to our Facebook group. Media Talk's produced by Ben Green and I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening and see you next time. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.